Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for sunshine after so much rain. God, we thank you for this space that we're able to meet each week. God, we thank you for uh, each person in this room who you have brought here for a purpose. And we thank you for your faithfulness, God, that you made a way for us to be in your presence when there was no way. God, that you sent your son to die so that we might live. God, let us not neglect such a great salvation. Tune our ears to your word this morning. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Survived Thanksgiving? Yeah, nice and rainy. Uh, I always find it interesting that like nobody wants to sit in the middle. Have you noticed that? I mean, there's the brave few in the front, many of whom I'm related to, but nobody wants to sit. It's as though I can't see you on the sides. Like you want to get as far away so that we can't like fix eyes. So I'll, I'll challenge you next week. Let's just try something different. I know if you grew up Baptist, that's like a reason to leave the church, right? You want me to move seats? Like, I grew up Baptist, so don't hate me for that. So, just a challenge. Try something new. You might meet somebody new. I don't know. But anyways, back in my early days as a pastor, I'd say nine years ago, I was at this meeting for Acts 29, which is the church planting organization that we're a part of, and there were probably 100 plus pastors in the room, and we were all seated around these tables, and I was sitting next to this older man, older pastor, and we had already done the obligatory introduction, and we chit-chat for a bit, and I didn't know at the time that this older pastor man was kind of a big deal in the Acts 29 world. His name is Bruce Wesley, and he was the guy that they asked to be the president over all of Acts 29 before they asked Matt Chandler, which is a name that you may know. So, needless to say, he's one of those guys that a lot of people, a lot of dudes especially, a lot of pastors wanted to be around. And then there was me, generally oblivious to who's important and who's not. And already significantly uncomfortable because I had to leave my house. I had to drive downtown, which is basically another country. And now I'm sitting in a room full of pastors who like to talk. Definitely not my sweet spot. And then at some point, whoever's running this thing said, okay, now let's take some time to pray. So just get with the man next to you and pray for each other. So... Bruce turns, he's like, hey, Patrick, let's pray together. And he prayed first, but I didn't hear a word that he said because all I could think about was how I totally did not remember this guy's name. No clue. And so as he prayed, I was debating how I was going to play this cool. Like, thank you, God, for this guy. Or thank you for my brother here. But I knew I'd be sniffed out. There was no getting around it. There was no getting past my careless forgetfulness. So when he got praying, I was like, hey, bro, sorry, I totally forgot your name. It was incredibly embarrassing. But Bruce just laughed graciously, and he told me his name, and then I prayed something for him that was super nice, probably extra nice. I prayed double long for him <laughs> to make myself feel better. 
I felt like a, a moron for this simple act of forgetfulness. But when I went and actually told some guys what had happened, they did their best to shame me for not knowing who Bruce Wesley was. So I felt even worse. But the good news is Bruce and I are good friends now, and we still laugh about the incident. I think he laughs more. He said it was actually kind of refreshing not to be known in that moment, and I think that's what known people say to make unknown people feel better. It really didn't lighten the shame of asking someone their name and then not knowing it five minutes later. But I think on many levels, this is the human condition. We are a forgetful people. That's why every website that requires a login has this button right underneath the login window that says, forgot password? Really? And I know that some of you use this button frequently, right? You were so convinced that you would remember the password this time. And then two days later, maybe two hours later, it's just gone. Like, where did it go? But forgetfulness isn't just a major theme in our lives. It is a major theme in the Bible. The, the entire story of the Israelites in the Old Testament could be summed up as the people who continually forgot God. They forgot who he was, they forgot what he had done, and they forgot his love. Throughout the book of Malachi, the people of Israel have been questioning God. They've been asking pointed and presumptuous questions. How have you loved us, God? How have we despised your name? Why do you not accept our offering? How have we wearied you, Lord? How have we spoken against you? Or last week, how have we robbed you? And what all of these questions reveal is not a desire to know God, but the Israelites' self-righteousness. They were so blind to their sin that they didn't think that they had done anything wrong. They were living under the illusion that they had been faithful to God and that He was somehow failing at His job. But the reality was that they had forgotten God. And this wasn't a Jason Bourne-style forgetfulness. They didn't have a medical condition like amnesia. They knew of God. They knew His Word, and they had convinced themselves that they were living for Him, but they had forgotten God in their hearts. Their love had been given to another. And what happened is that they stopped worshiping God, and they started trying to manage him. And it's very easy to approach faith in this way. We try and manage our relationship with God like I sometimes try and manage my email inbox. I have this bad habit of when I receive an email from a good friend, I'm like, oh, this is important. I need to give a significant amount of time to a thoughtful response to this person because I care for them. Then the emails pile up, the days pass by, and the email is buried so deep that I couldn't find it if I wanted to. And this is how we often try to manage God. We have grand ideas about how important God is to us and how we plan to honor Him with our lives. But our great intentions get swallowed up in busyness and distractions. 
Our perception of how much we value him is sometimes far greater than the reality our actions depict. And when we realize there's a problem, our solution is to tweak the management strategy. We try and shuffle things around to move God closer to the top of the list. But the problem is not how we manage God in our lives. It's the fact that we think we can manage God at all. That's the problem. One of the the top five most annoyingly unbiblical things that Christians say, uh, this is my list, there's not an official list of that, but I think this should be the official. One of the top five is, I need to make God the center of my life. I know that stinks, because probably a lot of us have said that. So it's okay, there's grace. It's good. I need to make God the center of my life. It sounds really good. We get the idea, but you can't make God anything, right? You can't make God anything. God is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over your life. You don't make God the center of your life. You either humble yourself before the Almighty God or you reject His sovereign authority by thinking He's one of the many pieces of your life that you can move around on a whim. There's no middle ground there. So when I say that the Israelites forgot God, what I mean is they stopped fearing Him and honoring Him as God. And they started trying to control Him. They began to see themselves as sovereign over their lives, and God is something they could move around or manipulate along with all the other important things they had going on. And in their self-righteousness, they thought they could take the seat of chief prosecutor and question God. That they could interrogate Him by questioning His faithfulness. Like the Israelites, our culture suffers from widespread forgetfulness. We struggle to remember who God really is. And what we need to realize is that it is impossible to worship what we think we can manage. It is impossible to worship what we think we can manage. But here in verse 16, we we actually find this, this hope in the midst of what's been a heavy, convicting book. We see the seeds of transformation springing up from the barren soil of God's people as genuine remembrance takes root in their hearts. In verse 16, we read, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So, What we read here at the beginning of our text for today is really, it's as shocking as anything we've read thus far in this book. Not not because of what is said, but because what what is not said. There is a segment of the people of Israel who we read about here who have finally stopped questioning God. They've stopped talking about God and challenging God and questioning God, and they've begun to talk with one another. They've stopped judging God's actions based on their self-proclaimed righteousness and began to judge their own hearts in light of His righteousness. They stopped 
trying to manage God, and they began to worship Him. By the Spirit of God working through the prophet Malachi, they remembered God in their hearts. This veil of self-righteousness was removed, and they saw the frailty of their existence before the Creator and Sustainer of life, and they were driven to fear. As we read in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the starting point of a life of faith. It is seeing ourselves in right relation to God as created, as dependent, not as accuser, but as those who stand accused in the divine court of God's perfect justice and knowing that our only hope is His mercy. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to show for ourselves. Apart from His grace and mercy, we stand condemned. This is the posture of those who fear the Lord. And we're going to talk more about the fear of the Lord next week, but today I want to look at what this passage is saying about those who fear the Lord. Malachi gives us very few details about the transformation that took place in the hearts of these people who feared the Lord, but there are two things that stand out. In verse 16, it says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and they esteemed his name. They stopped questioning God. We've seen it over and over and over in this book. And they spoke to one another. And when we look at the New Testament, we realize that one of the primary roles that the church plays, that that the people of God plays, is to remind one another about God. The apostles are are consistently and constantly reminding the people about God. They're continually urging them to gather together to encourage and exhort and admonish one another in the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:1, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And Peter Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, one of the greatest threats in our Christian life that leads us to forget God is isolation from the body. We need the church We need the people of God to remind us of who God is, to point us to the truth. As we talked about last week, the community itself is the conduit of God's blessing. It is through the faithfulness of God's people that His blessings flow. This is why we talk about small groups so much here at Christ Church. It's not because we want another night of your week. 
but, but because it is here that the life of the church is cultivated. How can we live as God's people and carry one another's burdens if we never take the time to actually know people? If we don't sacrifice our time to be invested in the lives of others, then it's impossible for us to live out the call of God on our lives as the church. It is inside these relationships forged through sacrifice that we are able to speak truth into one another's lives. It's here that we remind one another of God's unwavering faithfulness and mercy. So if you're a covenant member here at Christ Church, you need to be involved in a small group, not just for your good, but for the good of this church, for the health of those that you've covenanted with. And if Wednesday or Sunday doesn't work, get with Carrie and we'll work something out or we'll do our best because we cannot neglect to gather as God's people. But Malachi doesn't just say that they spoke to one another. It doesn't just say that they met on Wednesday nights for coffee and conversation. It says they esteemed his name. The people of God are the conduit of God's blessing, but we must never mistake the church or or building community as our ultimate goal. Community is not an end in and of itself. God is. This church is not the reason that we gather. God is. The church exists for one reason and one reason only, to make much of God, to glorify God, to esteem His name. This is genuine remembrance. It's true community. It is a people empowered by the Spirit of God to speak into the growing cloud of deception in this world and to point one another to the glory and the majesty of God. It's not just talking about sin, but seeing our sin in the light of His glory and encouraging one another towards repentance and faith. This is what we see in our text this morning. It is a picture of repentance. Those who feared the Lord stopped questioning His glory and started proclaiming it. They stopped stopped judging God based on their self-righteousness and began to see their own lives in light of His perfect holiness. And when these people turned to God in faith, when they feared Him and esteemed His name, look what it says. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. And in verse 17 we read, They shall be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own or his son who serves him. In the midst of our forgetfulness and faithlessness, God never forgets his promises keeping steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. After all that we've read in Malachi, all of the offenses of the Israelites, God never wavers in His faithfulness. 
Like a father, the father of the prodigal, God stands at the door waiting for his wayward children to remember the great love the father has for them and to turn back to him. No matter how far you wander from God, no matter how dark your past is, there is no rejection for those who love God. There is no condemnation for those who fear Him and esteem His name. Instead, verse 17, God says, They shall be mine in the day that I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. See, all of verse 17 here is a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. God says that those who fear the Lord will be my treasured possession. And this phrase, my treasured possession, literally means those God owns by virtue of redemption. Those God owns by virtue of redemption. See, the plan for the people of God was always redemption. God had a plan to redeem his covenant children, to free them from bondage to sin and death by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. God is in the business of taking sinful, broken people and redeeming them, claiming them as his own, as his treasured possession. Not because we deserve it, not because of anything that we have done, but because God lo loves to show mercy and grace to sinners. This is why he sent Jesus. So God says he's going to make them and make us his treasured possession. Then he says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And the imagery here points us back to God's powerful work of love in Exodus. And it points us forward to God's ultimate picture of love in Jesus Christ. See, it connects God's purpose in the Old Testament with the fulfillment of that purpose in the New Testament. When God says he's going to spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, it's a reference back to Passover. It points us back to Exodus 4, where Pharaoh refuses to release God's people from the Egyptian bondage. And in Exodus 4, verse 23, God refers to Israel as his son and instructs Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. And you know how the story goes. Pharaoh refused and all the people living in Egypt suffered the death of their firstborn son. Only the sons of Israel covered by the Passover blood were spared. This is the promise of a faithful and loving God to all who trust in Him. God has claimed us and purchased us through the blood of Jesus that we might be His treasured possession. And when Christ comes in judgment, we will be spared just as God spared Israel who was redeemed to serve Him. We have been redeemed to serve God. We have been adopted into his family. We were bought with a price that we might honor God in our bodies. 
And our redemption is not through the blood of animals. Our sins are not passed over because of our righteousness, but through the blood of Jesus. His blood paid the price of our redemption. His sinless death paid the penalty we could not pay. Christ is our Passover lamb. And in Romans 8.23, we have one of the most compelling verses in all of Scripture that point us back to the glorious truth of God's faithfulness to save. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God chose not to spare his true son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I might be adopted as sons and daughters. This is the great exchange. This is the ultimate sacrifice, his holiness for our sin, his glory for our shame, his death for our life. Christ, who served the Father perfectly, who obeyed the law perfectly, who lived a perfect, sinless, obedient life, even unto death, is the spotless lamb whose blood was shed to purchase our redemption. This is the gospel. And God has promised to save all who call upon his name, all who repent of their sin and trust in this son who obeyed his father perfectly for us. So my prayer for this community is that we would set our minds on the grace and mercy we have been shown in Christ. That we as a people would live lives of genuine remembrance. That we would joyfully pour ourselves out for one another so that the roots of the gospel would grow strong and deep in the soil of this community. As long as we're trying to manage God in our lives, we cannot be worshipers of Him. But when we humble ourselves before God in repentance and faith, God says, they shall be mine, my treasured possession. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You and we worship You for your unwavering faithfulness. God, even when we forget you over and over, even when we let the busyness and worries of this life consume us, you are always near, God. You are always with us. God, make us a people who remember your love and faithfulness. Make us a people who remind one another again and again so that your church might grow strong in faith. Father, let us not neglect to gather together, but to be a people who stir up one another to love and good works, that your glory might resound from this community. Amen.